Welcome to History for the Curious. I'm Mena Reisner, and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian, and tour guide, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage, from Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai Revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hesh, before we start, I wanted to wish you a huge mazel tov on the birth of your grandson. Thank you very much. Portia. For all the listeners, Rabbi Hirsch, even though he had a grandchild last night, is still back in the studio. Absolutely. And there's a Shalom Zohar this Friday night at my house. But before we proceed with the podcast, I just wanted to mention that it is Le'ilu Nishmas Nina Elsa Badar, who passed away on Sukkot, and it has been sponsored by the Madar family. Thank you. So this week, we want to complete the Yishmol versus Yisrael series with a two-part. Now, I know we've said a couple of times we thought we would complete it, and we keep extending it for good reason, but this will probably be the last, but who knows? Just before we begin, I also wanted to say that the annual Spotify Wrapped, it's known as, but statistics come out from one of our major streaming platforms, and it showed that we actually, this podcast came to number 47 on the global charts, which was a very impressive feat, and I want to thank all the listeners for helping us get there. It does show a true thirst for history worldwide, and we're grateful with how much the podcast has grown over time. So we want to address the questions that are more difficult to get answers for, especially Rabbi Hirsch in the first couple of episodes. We did mention certain questions that the public keep yes. asking, and we also noted the importance of Hasbara, and we noted the importance of advocacy on some level. So we want to draw together all the various parts of the series. Yes. So in other words, halacha, history, the conflict in international law, hashkofa, etc. Yes. So this week, we also have the benefit of having insights from the very well-known Rubitz Obreitowitz and Rev. Osher Weiss. And next week, hopefully, we will be introducing a very senior member of the British government. Yep. And for the moment, we are going to cover the definitions of the war, the limitations, and where we go from here, what the future looks like, the different battlefronts that exist, and how we view a siege against an enemy. But we will start with the parameters of war. Okay, thank you. So now we're just going to go over to a pre-recorded session that we had a couple of nights ago with Rabbi Breitowitz. So we have the honor of having Rabbi Yitzchok Breitowitz join us now. Rabbi Breitowitz is the Rav of Ozameach, and he is a guide and teacher at Ozameach Yeshiva, and he has been a teacher for thousands of Jews worldwide. He has a massive expertise in halacha, in contemporary society, and he's a Rav and Posek based in Yerushalayim. He also has a podcast of his own. We don't generally get to plug a different podcast on ours, but it's fantastic, and I'm actually a very, very big fan of, where Abreitowitz goes through a Q&A with his audience in Osamech, and it's ranging from the entire halachic and ashkafic spectrum, and I highly recommend you give it a listen. Rabbi it's a real honor that you joined us. Thank you so much, especially on short notice. And if we could just dive in straight to our first question. And that is, obviously, we don't know all the calculations that the army has in this war that we are currently going through. But from what we see, is the army incursion into Gaza justified in Halacha? If I could just as a bit more of an intro... There are thousands of rockets raining down all over Eretz Yisrael. And yes, we do have an Iron Dome, which Baruch Shem Hashem has given us as a gift to save Jewish lives. However, in theory, without it, the entire Klali Yisrael would be in danger. So is the justification in Halacha because really the entire Eretz Yisrael is in danger? And even though we have an Iron Dome protecting us, but there's rockets coming down, or the fact that Hamas terrorists did such an atrocious terrorist attack and would very likely do that again, as they have themselves said, and therefore there is a potential future Pekuach Nefesh, is that alone enough reason for us to risk our lives in this war? Yes, thank you very much, Russell. I'm very honored to be here. I have uh, very fond memories of JLE in London and uh, the time that I spent there. And God willing, I hope I'll eventually be able to pay a visit again. 
the issue about the halakhic legitimacy of the incursion in Gaza, I think, is fairly obvious, although the actual analytic basis may be a little questionable. And here's what I mean. There is a category in Torah called milchama, and there are two types of milchama. There are milchamet rishut, which are optional wars, which cannot be fought today at all, because we need a Sanhedrin, and we need a Urim Betumim, etc. But there is another category called milchamet mitzvah, in which waging a war is not only permitted, but it is a mitzvah, it is an obligation. And the Rambam gives you three types of milchamet mitzvah. Type one is war against Amalek, which perhaps we don't have today because that's a particular ethnic group, a war against the seven nations, which are extinct. But the third category is unfortunately very much alive, and that is to protect the Jewish people from an enemy that is seeking their destruction. I think under any definition, Hamas is an enemy that is committed to the destruction of the Jewish presence in the land of Israel, and they don't just have it as part of their official platform, which they do, but they've actually done it, as we've seen in the October 7th massacre, pograma, whatever you want to call it, in which you know men, women, and even babies were viciously slaughtered. So this clearly falls within the category of Mohammed Mitzvah, in which waging war is not only permitted, but it is mandatory. Now, once we get into halakhic technicalities, it is a little tricky because there is one oblique reference in the Sefer and Mitzvot of the Rambam that suggests that Mohammed's Mitzvah requires the decision of a melech, which we technically don't have. But again, as I say, I've spoken to many Tambadei Chachamim about this very question, and they have said that the Rambam is referring to Amalek and the seven nations. When you're dealing with a defensive posture, governments will have the role of the Melech. Uh, Ramban says that explicitly. So I think it's very, very clear that we can proceed under the laws of Muhammad Mitzvah. Now, even if you want to play devil's advocate and say that without a Melech, we don't have the halachot of milchama, we still have another principle called rodeh. If someone is trying to kill me, I am permitted to kill them. Someone comes to kill you, you kill them first, if they cannot be disabled another way. So you don't necessarily have to pigeonhole this under the laws of milchama, you could equally justify it based on Rodek. And I think that would circumvent the perhaps technical requirement of needing a Melech. So whether you predicate it on the laws of Rodek or you predicate it on the laws of Milchama, I think it is absolutely justified. Now, I do want to point out that to the IDF's very, very great credit, they do try to minimize more than any other army in the world, including the United States, civilian casualties. They give warnings, they give leaflets, they have phone calls, they have text messaging to get people out of harm's way. And this last time I checked, I don't think Hamas gave any particular advance warning in October 7 for people to leave. So we try to save lives. We try to minimize casualties. But if Hamas is putting itself in hospitals, in residential areas, if they're using not only our people as human shields, but their people as human shields, then... It's tragic. I don't mean to be callous, but it is the collateral damage of going after an enemy that's trying to destroy you. And Halacha does say we try to minimize that collateral damage. But if it becomes necessary for the military objective, Halacha permits that as well. What is the reason why, if I could just as a postscript on that question, like the Rav just explained, the IDF do more than any other army in the world to prevent civilian casualties. And yet we see the world not only ignoring that fact, but it looks like we are always the bad guys. And, you know, you look even in recent history with England, what we did in World War II and what America did in Iraq and many other such examples. And yet we've always got the bad press. Is this just age old anti-Semitism or is this any other reason why no one else can see what we know to be as fact? You know, it's just quite amazing, exactly as you pointed out. The United Kingdom, what did Great Britain do in World War II? Whether it was the Dresden bombing, what did the United States do with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in which you were dealing with hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties? Every single army in the world is much less conscientious, and I'm not even blaming them. Sometimes what they did is necessary as well. Somehow, 
it is precisely the one army in the world that takes these concerns the most seriously, that gets the most condemnation. Someone just showed me an article in the New York Times in which somebody said that Israel owes reparations to the civilian families that were harmed. I mean, is Hamas offering reparations to the people that it massacred? You know, and I'll tell you the truth, Israel will probably consider it. And again, I'm not going to condemn them if they want to be benevolent and charitable, because as I say, we get no joy out of the deaths of any human being. Just as the Medrash tells us, when the Egyptians were drowning, Hashem said, it is not a time for joy. We do what we have to do, but that doesn't mean we get joy and pleasure out of it. So it's really perplexing. Anti-Semitism is somewhat one of the mysteries of why people hold the Jews to a double standard. It's hard to explain it rationally. It's totally irrational. But in terms of hashkacha, in terms of divine providence, I think there are reasons. I think anti-Semitism is one of God's mechanisms to prevent total assimilation. It makes us realize that we have to be different. We have to be separate when we think we're going to curry favor by simply becoming like the goyim. Then the goyim remind us that we're never going to be totally accepted. So I once gave a talk actually in London on what I call the hidden blessings of anti-Semitism. Not that we want the persecution or harm to anybody, but there's a certain blessing there. And indeed, it's also a reminder that if the nations are always intimating a double standard, perhaps it's a message to us that we do have to live by a higher standard. Indeed, they don't have the right to judge us that way, but maybe we have to judge ourselves because God expects more of us. But in truth, just as you point out, on a rational level, it just makes no sense. People who are doing things many magnitudes worse than whatever Israel is doing somehow are in the business of condemning Israel for what Israel does. Right. So given that it's almost impossible to wipe out all of Hamas, because if you're trying to wipe out Islamic extremists and terror and people who want to kill us, that's pretty much a failed mission from the start. But I wanted to know if there is a concept of Nakoma in the Torah, meaning without an ability at all to eradicate the threat. And of course, we were trying to, and of course, that's a justification in Alocha to do as much as we can. But is there any concept of Nakoma, especially in the Torah, we say, Kel Nakoma is Hashem, or is that only something for Hashem? Yeah, this is a very good point. And I think it's very important to maybe dispel the misconception. I, you, you often find from circles that are critical of Israel, that why is Israel engaged in this never-ending cycle of vengeance? And it's very, very important to understand that although vengeance is a human trait that we would naturally feel, it is not one that the Torah endorses. Hashem is called the God of Nikama because God can mete out justice in a perfect way. Nikama is something we need to avoid, as understandable as it is. So we are not fighting Hamas to take revenge over what they did to 1,200 or 1,300 of our people. We are fighting Hamas to protect Am Yisrael from future attacks. Uh, vengeance, I do not believe, should enter into the calculus. And that is why, even under the laws of Milchama, we are permitted to kill the enemy, but we're not permitted to torture them. We're not permitted to humiliate them. Our job is very focused. Get rid of the threat. That could be by imprisonment, that could be by death, if necessary. But we don't go beyond what's necessary for the mission. I think vengeance is not a proper motivating emotion, unless you're God that's capable of doing it in a very perfect way. Now, as to the fact that more or less it's impossible to totally eradicate, is well, I guess Hamas perhaps might be eradicated in theory, but Islamic fundamentalism certainly cannot be. Well, you're right. But again, there are levels and there are levels. If we could, for example, make Gaza a safer place so we don't have a basis for missiles within the boundaries of Medinat Israel, I think that's a major, major step. So obviously, protection is not 100%, but if we could make the environment safer, that would be our hishtadlus in the laws of Nohama to try to do so. But I specifically would not predicate this on a vengeance motif. Can I ask, picking up on what the Rob has been saying, and the idea of Nakama being in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's purview and not ours, but moving forward generally, there is a very real awakening in Klal Yisrael. People davening more, 
people in Eretz Yisrael in particular feeling an achdus to each other across the religious divide. But obviously, over time, these things tend to dissipate in Hashem when we have safer and more peaceful times. What can we do realistically to attempt to keep things going? Yeah, you know, you're highlighting actually one of the greatest worries that I personally have, because if there's any silver lining in the darkness of our situation, is people don't even remember, but before October 7, Eretz Yisrael was being torn apart by dissension on all levels. There was this judicial reform thing that was going on, and then there was the various demonstrations against Haredim in the army, you know, protesting Haredim and being drafted in the army. And people were literally talking about the disintegration of democratic society in the state of Israel. They were talking about the end of the state, the end of democracy. People were saying they're going to leave Eretz Israel. There were chayalim or reservists who were saying they were not going to report to Milim. And by the way, some have said that may have emboldened Hamas. Baruch Hashem, our chayalim did show up, but Hamas thought they weren't going to show up. That may have given them a green light. So what we've seen since October 7, again, as you said, is we've seen a great, great, great achdutz within Am Yisrael that we haven't seen for a long time. You know, Hamas didn't care if you were wearing a black yarmulke or a knitted yarmulke or no kippah at all. And Baruch Hashem, we also understand that we're Jews and we got to stick together. If I could quote Thomas Paine from the American Revolution, we all have to hang together or we're going to certainly hang separately. And I've seen this achdus on all levels. There are Haredim that have joined the army. Hasidim and yeshiva people are collecting food and medical supplies. And of course, the making of sitches and spelling. There are tens of thousands of secular chayobim who want to wear sitches. And many want to wear tefillin as well. We can't even keep up with the demand. So I think there's unity, there's love, there's togetherness. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But what often happens is exactly as you said that when life gets back to normal, and be as Hashem, we hope it will get back to normal very soon, then it's business as usual. And all that we gained in the moments of tribulation and adversity, we're going to lose. And that's a tragedy compounded a tragedy, because the tragedy of the war, but at least if we've grown and we've learned from it, that's something positive. If we simply go back to the destructive behaviors which caused the destruction of the second base Amikdash, then that's a tragedy on top of the tragedy of war. So you're 100% correct. It's precisely at this particular moment in time that we have to be thinking about what can we do to keep this momentum going in the future. And I think we have to talk about outreach. I don't mean only outreach in the narrow sectarian Kirov sense, although that's important too, but general outreach of our caring about each other, of dialoguing, of respecting each other, of understanding the different viewpoints, creating forums or fora where people can come together. I don't have a tremendous organizational sense of how those things are going to be done, but we, you're right. We have to think about keeping the momentum, opening uh, Shabbat homes, whatever it is. I will tell you this, the average Israeli, speaking about Eretz Israel in particular, even if he's secular, actually does have a strong religious feeling very, very often, but they're kind of scared off by the intensity of the ultra-Orthodox world. They think that if I want to do a little bit more stuff about Shabbat, I got to grow a beard, give up my job, and, and join a cola. And I don't want to touch that. I think many, many secular Israelis would be very, very open to a greater involvement with Judaism, especially if they don't feel demonized or delegitimated or disrespected. You know, there's a verse in Mishlei that I often quote from Shlomo HaMelech. As water reflects the face that you show it, so the heart of man reflects that which you show it. The Vilna Gaon explains, when I look into a reflecting pool of water, whatever face I show the water is the face I get back, a smiling face. I get a smile, a frowning face, I get a frown. So too, when I show you respect, I recognize your dignity. I recognize your contribution. You will be open to recognizing mine. And to me, that is the secret weapon in all relationships, being religious and secular. But when we're in this business of demonetization and delegitimation and all of those negative things, we're just reinforcing their negative response 
to what Torah represents. So I think we got to kind of cut that Gordian knot and kind of see the good in each other. And that way, I think that'll bring us together. Thank you. So that was obviously a question on the divide between the less religious, let's say, and the more religious. But to discuss a greater divide, and this is something we struggle with in Chutzlar, it's obviously in Eretz Yisrael, there's much more of an atmosphere of survival and reaction to the war that's around the corner. But in Chutzlar, it's we try and do advocacy to as much as we can. We actually recorded a podcast on this recently. And so we really wanted to ask about advocacy in general, because that's obviously an ishtadless element to it. But the question is, how far does one go? Do we look at Jews in any form of power, that they should do whatever they can to speak to governments and do what they can to change government thinking in a way of being pro-Israel or to change the public? There's things people could do just on their social media to write posts, there's protests, there's hanging up signs, there's so many little bits one can do to try and put the Israelis and our war in a more positive light in Chutzlarets. I'm just wondering what the Hishtadlis element of it is, and do we have examples of G'daylim being in favour throughout history of advocacy in general? Perhaps to add just one point, and that is, we find in this week's parasha, Yosef speaking to the Saramashkin was considered to be doing too much Ishtadlus. So there clearly is some sort of area where we should get involved, where it's likely to have a positive outcome, as opposed to generally trying to talk to the non-Jewish world as a whole, where you're not going to convince them, I presume. Perhaps that's a wasted effort. Yeah, this has been a matter of controversy for, for many, many years. I can go back at least as far back as the 1970s, when there were demonstrations against the former Soviet Union to release uh, Jews. So there were Gedolin at the time who were against it because they took the position that by antagonizing the Soviet government, you might be making things harder for the Jews that were there. And they felt that quiet, you know, undercover diplomacy might have been the better way to go, as opposed to huge demonstrations and the like. And they had this idea that, you know, we're still Gullus Jews, we're still in Gullus, we can't really expect the Umota Olam to respond to us, and we have to kind of just accept things. Now, as you know, was it last week or two weeks ago, there was a the big rally in Washington, D.C., which had uh, 300,000 uh, Jews. And even then, although there was a wide representation of even the yeshiva community, but the official position of the Moetz Eskidolia Torah of the Israel, they changed their mind, but they actually said to people not to go. On the day of the rally, they changed their position. And I myself was torn initially because I thought, you know, maybe it's better for Jews not to have a high profile because that feeds into anti-Semitism and the like. But on the other hand, I think overall, these things have been beneficial because Jews, after all, are part of society, we should have the same rights as anyone else, even though we are discriminated against. So I think the types of advocacy and the types of demonstrations that are common in all segments of society, I don't think we need to exclude ourselves from. So I think that although as a rabbi, as a maimon, of course, I believe that our primary weapons are Torah, mitzvot, tefillah, of course, but I think within the Ishtadlus, just as there is the Ishtadlus of Nuhama, I think there is the Ishtadlus of advocacy. And at least demonstrations, when done in the right way, can also be very, very effective. Right, so it's final question. Thank you very much. And the broad question is, what does Hashem want from us? Now, of course, we're not in a VM. But I would like, although it's been fascinating, every answer you've given to an actual practical takeaway for, I would say, the average Jew around the world, not necessarily in Eretz Yisrael, where there's possibly more to do, but Rabbi Hirsch on one of our first episodes spoke about filler very much. Can the Rav give us a practical takeaway on something that a person can feel like they're reacting to such a terrible but historical time in an appropriate way? Well, there are kind of two perspectives, but I think they both converge. I mean, one perspective is that all of this is part of what are called the Chavle Mashiach, the birth pains before Mashiach. And of course, there are many, many sources. You probably have done or will do some podcasts about the Galut Yishmael, that the final Galut before the coming of Mashiach involves the ascendancy of the powers of Yishmael. And to make it even worse, the Maral combines that with a unholy confederation between Yishmael and Paras, which is Iran, kind of getting together. 
So all of this is predicted in our Midrashim and the, by the Makubalim. So part of this is the scary pre-Messianic times of Gog and Magog and Malchut Yishmael, which on one hand, the good news is this is the darkness before the dawn. This is the labor pain before the birth, whichever metaphor you want to use. Both metaphors are true. So that does mean we have to prepare for the coming of Mashiach. Now, that doesn't mean it'll be tomorrow. I don't know when it'll be, but we're in the season. We're in the pre-Messianic era. We're in the ikvas of the Mashiach, the heels of Mashiach, the Chavle Mashiach. But I also think that there are a lot of important messages, speculative. But I can't help remembering the tremendous disunity and machlokas that have existed over the past few years in Eretz Israel. And Hashem is sending you a message. We have to be together. We have to unite. We have to have Abbas Israel. We have to have Achdus. Because when we are torn apart, we will be torn apart. There will be enemies that will try to destroy us. Now in the Haggadah, we have the famous passage, It is not only one that has tried to destroy us, but the Svas Emes tweaks the language a bit. It is only the fact that we're not echad is So to me, the very, very big message is Achdus and Abish Yisrael. Brightwitz, as always, you've delivered a clear, concise, and very eloquent answers to difficult questions. And we really appreciate you taking out your precious time to be with us. And we're waiting for your next trip to London. Well, thank you very much. And God willing, I'm looking forward to it. And much, much hatzlacha. Thank you. And we're back to the studio, Rabbi Hirsch. That was, a, like I said, a real honor to have him on and a lot of information to take in. Definitely worth listening to a second time and a lot of food for thought. Yes, and I would like to pick up on one point that was mentioned and expand on another. You'd mentioned in your question to Rabbi Breitowitz when describing the situation in Israel that if not for the Iron Dome, all of Eretz Israel would be in a theoretical situation of Pekoch Nefesh. Now, actually, even with the Iron Dome, that is still true to some degree. I'd like to share an actual event as well as certain facts and a report from as recently as Motzah Shabbos. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had a Friday night meal at friends of ours locally, and there was a couple there who live in London, but they have an apartment in Tel Aviv, and that's where they were over Sukkot this year. On the terrible Shabbos, the 7th of October, at 6.30 in the morning, he hears a loud bang and what sounds like debris falling on the roof. Now, he lives on the top floor of a five-story building, so he's just under the roof, and in fact, his sukkah was on the roof. So he does something which, in hindsight, is pretty inadvisable, and that is he goes up to the roof because he assumed that this was pieces of a missile that had been shot down after the Iron Dome intervention. But he found pieces of an actual missile that was still hot to the touch. And across the road, he sees that a missile has landed in the park. He goes and, you know, by the way, he said that this missile is literally made of water pipes. You know, the pipes that you have running in your street, it was as if somebody had made a missile in their back garden. That's what they're doing. And it's important to understand in this context that these missiles are primitive in the sense that they land indiscriminately. They're not controlled. So he goes to the park and the park two hours later would have been filled with children. And therefore, you have a missile actually landing in Tel Aviv, which was not shot down by the Iron Dome. And therefore, you can see a situation occurring at the beginning of this conflict where they were falling indiscriminately across Eretz Israel because there aren't actually enough Iron Dome units to cover everywhere at such an invasion. Beyond anything else, it's a very expensive endeavor. The USA has given Israel in the last 12 years $3 billion of support just for defensive missile systems. And in addition to that, as recently as Motzah Shabbos, I saw a report that the IDF are examining failing Iron Dome missiles. Just want to add to that, I actually remember once asking my Rosh Shiva, Rabbi Gurvitz, as to why we say Hagomo, why do we say the prayer after flying to thanking Hashem for his mercy and protecting us on a dangerous venture? Flying is so safe. 
really we should be saying Hagomel statistically every time we drive. Right. And his response was fascinating. He said that flying is actually a very dangerous method of travel. The fact that pilots are very well trained and the safety of the planes is checked so often maybe makes it statistically safer, but it actually is dangerous. So possibly we could compare it here to uh, right. something that is actually dangerous. And the fact that we have iron domes, who knows? Maybe the missiles will one day circumvent that, but chas yep. And actually, there are three different schools of thought in regards to saying Hagoimel. But for another time. But for another time, yes. So, Baruch Hashem, since the end of October, as a result of the soldiers overrunning so much territory in Gaza and destroying so many launchers and actual terrorists, we see that, for instance, Yerushalayim has only had one air raid siren in the past four weeks, I believe, as opposed to the three weeks prior to that. And the missile numbers are not now overwhelming the various cities. I spoke to somebody in Ashdod last week. He told me, you have 15 seconds from the air raid siren to find shelter. And, you know, I've seen a psak that beyond any considerations of the war being Milchames Mitzvah, or a situation of Reidev, it's simply that initially the entirety of Eretz Yisrael was in the matzav of Pikuach Nefesh. And I believe that this also weighs in on the decision of some Haredim to enlist in the army. I don't believe that for some of these people it necessarily represents a departure from their position in Halacha regarding participation in the army normally, meaning that in a future time of at least relative stability, they wouldn't necessarily enlist. It's not that halach has changed for them, but that this matzav requires a response based on any of the three criteria discussed with regards to this situation. Right. Obviously, everyone starts their own role before making these decisions. Absolutely. But I guess we'll see how Poskin will formulate the situation further down the line. Keeping with the topic of the halacha and ashkofa of the war, we now move to two specific questions that we asked Rav Osher Weiss last week, and we were directed to his insights on the topic. Those of you who have not heard of Rav Osher Weiss, he is the Robin Ramot and a head of various Kolim. He's a major halachic authority in Israel, who he serves as a postdoc for many institutions, including Sharitzedek Hospital, with a expertise on medical ethics and the like, and the Israeli police force, and he also runs the based in Darche Torah. Yes. So the first question out to him was regarding our relationship to the soldiers involved in the fighting, especially those of us who are here in Chutzlaretz. And Raboshevice shared both a personal perspective as well as the hashkofa of some of the gedolim of the previous generation, as you will hear in the following clip. Yesterday, Erev Shabbos, I mean. I went to be Menachem over the Slotki family. They live down the block, 200 meters from my house. Wonderful people. The father, the Russian Mishpoka Sarov of Ashur, young Israel Shun in Ramot. They lost two sons. Both sons left Almonis and babies. Two brothers lived in Beersheba. They weren't serving in the army. But they heard what's happening down south, put on their uniforms, and went down to fight. They didn't have to do so. Nobody called them up, but they understood. Where Jews are in danger, we are all there, and we all rise to the challenge. Both boys were killed, killed in action. And parents are sitting shiver over two boys. It is heart-wrenching. I just sat there and cried. And the commander of one of the two boys, totally Chiloni, walked in and he started crying. It's moving to see battle-hardened soldiers that saw everything. They saw combat, they saw bloodshed, crying like little children over one another. And that is an amazing display of Achtos. And it is not only in Israel, wherever there's a Jewish community in the entire world. This is unique to Jews. I don't think it could happen to any other people. Wherever there is Jewish community, big or small, Kulanu 
So we should learn and daven for these young soldiers. They should all come safely home. So last week I quoted the Shmuz from Reb Cheska Levenstein, which is printed in a kuntas called Koivitz in Yonim. Shmuz that Reb Cheska Levenstein was the Mashkiach in Panovich. You can get more mainstream it was the Mashgiach Ampanovich. And he says in one of the Shmus, and how could we sleep by night when we know there are thousands of fathers and mothers that can't fall asleep because their kids are serving in the army? So what was so pushed to Rabbi Cheska Levenstein and to Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz today, Bechlal is a discussion. I remember the closing of a Rebbe. And one of his titles, one of his shows, was printed this Shabbos. The Kloisenberger Rebbe says, I got a kvittle. I got a kvittle from a family. Father and two sons are serving in the army. And the Kloisenberger Rebbe cries out, just try to imagine. Father and two sons serving in the army. And he hopes they'll come safely home. So the Kloisenberger Rebbe, the Kloisenberger Rebbe, Across the board, the greatest of Shashiva, the greatest of Mashgiach, the greatest of that. So keep on davening, keep on learning. A Kodesh Bochus should bring them all safely home. Benotati shalom ba'oretz v'shachatem ve'ein machrit. The second question we asked was how Halacha views raising a siege in war, and his answers are based on the Psukim Imparshus Shreftim that deal with warfare, which makes a distinction between the initial approach and actual war having broken out, as you will hear in this following clip. These Psukim deal with two stages, two different stages, which have two different halachas. Kisiklav and Ielehilochem, or Leobekoros, or Leolishon. We're not fighting yet. We're not fighting. We're laying siege to a city. And before one shot was fired, we offer peace. And we tell the population, we're not here to destroy you. We don't want bloodshed. If you're willing to make peace, then you're going to be okay. At this stage, it is legitimate to put a siege on the city to threaten them. But at this stage, you need to leave one side open. Whoever wants to leave should leave. They're not fighting us yet. At this stage, everything is okay. However, if the enemy decides, and they decided to fight the Tsar Tolayom. And at that stage, Lar Ivo, Lar Smeo, Misa, Misus At that stage, they decided, decided to fight us. We can do anything to destroy the enemy and to be victorious and avoid and prevent bloodshed of our own. So it goes without saying, in our circumstances, we're not dealing with Islam siege. They came into our country savagely, brutally, something that hasn't been seen for years. And they captured Jews. We can do anything to destroy the enemy, and it is legitimate, not be Allah. I wanted to expand on what both our guest speakers had mentioned into the halakhic area of collateral damage, i.e. bombing a building where a terrorist is hiding, where there will be civilian casualties, and how halacha views this. And we will also see how international law and common practice views this next time. Now, of course, once again, you differentiate between the case where civilians are sheltering the terrorists to a case where the terrorist has taken refuge unbeknownst to the civilians there. It also makes a difference whether the civilian population are random people who now became part of this narrative, or whether they are people who enabled in some way the terrorists to be a factor of power in the country in which they live. Now, in Jewish history, we really start with last week's Sedra, 
where Yaakov Avinu is faced with a similar situation. When confronted with the possibility of fighting his brother Esau and his followers, the Posuk tells us Vayira and Vayetzer. He was fearful and distressed, and Rashi explains that Yaakov was not only worried that he may be killed, but also that he might kill others during the confrontation. So here we see this consideration. Even more explicitly, you find the action of Sholomelech, King Shol, who commands his people to go and spread out in a particular city when Shol had been given the mitzvah to wipe out Amalek, because this particular city had a majority of Amalek, but some from the Kani tribe. And he gave them a warning to leave the city immediately, otherwise he wouldn't be responsible for their deaths. Sounds a lot like Israel warning civilians in Gaza yeah, to yeah, escape. Yes, yeah, I'm wondering if they got it from there, but yes, very much so. But of course, there are times where you can't give a warning, maybe because it removes the element of a surprise attack, or when doing so would increase Jewish soldier casualties. So... One interesting departure point comes from a statement in the Gemara in Shavuos Lamed base, which I came across today, where Shmuel says that you are allowed to sacrifice the Jewish civilian population if that's what it takes to survive as a nation, up to one-sixth. And Tosfos writes that we mean in Melchemes Rushus, not Melchemes Mitzvah. The death of civilians is seemingly permitted, and collateral damage is in order when it will achieve necessary goals. Now, Roshon Yisraeli, who served on Eretz Yisrael's Supreme Rabbinical Court, notes that we don't find the obligation in war to distinguish between blood and blood, as he puts it, between combatants and non-combatants. When you're laying siege to a city, there's no obligation to make such a distinction. And similarly, the Poisik and, and Roshkoler of David Bleich in Contemporary Halachic Problems writes, and I quote, Not only does one search in vain for a ruling prohibiting military activity that is likely to result in the death of civilians, but to this writer's knowledge, there exists no discussion in rabbinic sources that takes cognizance of the likelihood of causing civilian casualties in the course of hostilities, which are legitimately under taking, we don't find this anywhere as posing a halachic or moral problem. And likewise, the Torah contains no record of Bnei Yisrael risking their lives to save enemy civilians. And we find that in his last act on earth, Shimshon Hagibur, whose eyes had been gouged out by the enemy, killed approximately 3,000 Pelishtim in the Gaza Strip as a strike against the enemy, killing himself in the process. So we see that others were involved, not just people in the military. But perhaps the most obvious example of killing civilians is Shimon and Levi's massacre in Shechem, which we saw in last week's Sedra. One man kidnapped Dina. Why did Shimon and Levi target the rest of the male population? So the Rambam answers that every society is obligated to ensure that justice reigns. And therefore, Shechem's civilians should have punished their prince for kidnapping and subjecting a foreigner to force. If they didn't do so, they deserve to die. In which case, we are living in a parallel situation today. Now, the Maral's answer is different, and although some see the Maral as being very strong, he is probably on balance halfway between the Rambam and the Ramban's opinion on the issue. He explains that even though only one man sinned, he belonged to a larger nation, and they, therefore Shimon and Levi are permitted to take uh, action against all of them where there is provocation of war or similar by their other nation. And where there is purpose, meaning where there is no better way to accomplish the military goal, it's fully permissible. And the same is true, says the morale, of other wars that Klal Yisrael were in. For instance, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe, destroy the Midianites. It makes no difference that many of the individuals that are being targeted didn't harm Klal Yisrael. The nation they belong to did. War, by its very nature, is collective. It pits one society against another. 
And, in addition, where there are potential risks of death to the Jews, which is only responding to this threat. So Rav Herschel Schacht, who is the Rosh Kohl at YU, prioritizes Jewish survival over enemy civilian deaths to the degree that he argues that Israel acted immorally when uh, terrorists were embedded within civilian populations in Jenin, in Lebanon, in, this, in 2003, in particular 2006 as well, and Israel wanted to reduce civilian casualties, and it cost the lives of Israeli soldiers. And he proves this from a Minchas Chinuch in uh, Mitzvah Tovchaf Hay and a Briskarov that we view life and risk to life very differently in times of war. And from Nochem Amsel records that Rav Bleich agrees with Rav Shechta that it's forbidden to risk Israeli lives in order to save non-Jewish civilians in a war that they are obliged to be involved in. And Rav Zolman Sorotskim, finally, the Yisnaim Latera, adds that this is also the position of the Nativ in Mareme Sode. So you've explained very much the account of innocent civilians. Can it not be argued that in certain cases, the civilians, so-called civilians, might not be considered innocent? I mean, as more and more footage comes out, you see a lot of the terrorists that broke through, they had many civilians with them. And then you see the civilians in the streets of Gaza just openly applauding terrorists. What is right. considered innocent? Right. And you saw that some of the hostages, or you heard that some of the hostages were kept in the houses of so-called... Professionals, doctors right. even. Yeah. Right. Okay. So listen, the terrorist is often a hero in the community and he's treated like a celebrity. Does that make them complicit in protecting the terrorist? In other words, because they know that Israelis won't intentionally kill children or innocents, and therefore are they no longer collateral damage, but collaborators. So we have an actual case of what you might term who is really innocent in an incident in Gaza in 2000, I think November of 2000. On that particular day, the Israeli army warned the residents to leave a particular apartment house because they would be blowing up that building. But rather than leaving, the residents called their friends and neighbors, and together they formed a human chain, and the terrorist escaped. So yes, in these cases, it's compelling to apply the rule of being able to act in the interests of the Jewish army and the Jewish nation is attacking. But obviously, it's not a general rule. And overall, it is definitely a terrible consequence of war when innocent civilians are killed and no one gains. Tragically, though, when terrorism attacks and then it retreats to its own territory, but it's unrepentant in its sworn enmity, halacha justifies casualties if this is the most constructive way to destroy the enemy. And there's also another consideration of Ramesha Feinstein in general areas, and that is that secular law has to be obeyed as it is observed and not as it is written, meaning that if the world's powers embark on a particular course of action on an ongoing basis, it becomes permitted. And we'll come back to this next week. Okay, so the last point to cover today is based on one of the questions we asked Robert Breitowitz, namely advocacy or hishtadlis. He spoke about our approach today, as we did last week, but I would like to know more about advocacy historically. It's a question we've been asked by some of our listeners since last week's. Through the ages, was it something that Gadolim actually supported? And perhaps, therefore, has advocacy actually ever changed the opinions and the hearts and the minds of the non-Jewish world? Meaning, is it something we should really consider, but more from a historical perspective? Okay. So, as you say, we have been emailed about this, and it's important to see this idea of shtadlonus, lobbying, if you will, in historic terms. And I mean for the Klal, I'm not talking about the individual. As I mentioned last week, individuals are most effective with efforts aimed at fellow Jews and maybe attentive non-Jewish colleagues. I'm talking about negotiating on behalf of the community. And advocacy has three different goals, areas. The first and most obvious is advocating for a specific, almost targeted issue, which is live. The classic example would be the Chofetz Chaim traveling to Warsaw regarding Jewish education in 1930, 
the Chofetz Chaim by then was unwell, he was very old, and he makes the effort because he believes it's important. And he met the Prime Minister, Kazimierz Bartel, and famously, even before the translator put the Chofetz Chaim's words from Yiddish into Polish, this non-Jewish minister said, you know, it's fine, you don't need to translate, those were words coming from the heart. And so clearly we see at least two obvious things from this encounter. Firstly, you can't rely only on Tefillah, even the Chofetz Chaim, and that it can bring, on occasion, real benefits. And although we can call this a specific goal, even there we have to realize it wasn't just one directed meeting that took place, but they were meeting at various layers, various levels of politicians and influencers to try and bring about an outcome. So that's level one, it's the most obvious. Then there's level two, where Gedolim got involved in issues where there was a general threat or problem, even though perhaps the people they were speaking to were not the source of the problem, but they nevertheless put an enormous amount of effort into it. Classically, we know about the march on Washington by the 400 Ravonim in 1943, which included Rebilliezer Silva and Ravon Kalmanovitz and Ramesh Feinstein. And interestingly, it was opposed by many secular Jewish organizations, including the head of reform, Stephen Weiss, who was very friendly with the president. And there had not been agreement that the president would even meet them. And they were, in fact, almost ignored. There's a headline in one of the newspapers, which is Rabbi's Report Cold Welcome at the White House. But the Rabbonim felt they needed to go. And it was, you know, it was during a serious matruva, basically Erev Yom Kippur. So that's one scenario. There's another one. After the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881, Pogroms were unleashed against the Jews, but there was a complete news blackout, which was imposed by the Russian Empire on the events. And that meant that people internationally were unaware that Jews had been targeted and killed, and that the peasants had been allowed, in fact, basically encouraged to do so by the government, and you couldn't get word out of the country. So Rubyutical Khanon, Spectre, in consultation with Rizal Salant, managed to brilliantly create coded telegrams using the subject of an aguna as the supposed issue. In other words, there's this woman who's been abandoned and abused, but it was actually all about the Jews in Russia. They pulled this off and they got word out to Shamshafal Hirsch in Germany, to Lord Rothschild in England, to have them get their local governments agitate on behalf of the Jews. It was a coordinated and planned strategy. And they stressed that the people who should speak up for the Jews should actually be non-Jews, because that way it would be much more effective. And it was discussed in the end in Parliament in the UK. It featured in the Times newspaper. And the goal here was obviously much more convoluted, because you first need to convince the non-Jews in Western Europe and they then need to put pressure on the Tsar, even though Tsarist Russia is a dictatorship. Now, in both cases, they had a Yom Tefillah too, obviously, but they engaged in this and it took quite a bit of effort to do. On a more, I guess you'd say, maybe basic level, there's a trouble from Ramosha Feinstein about whether you should push the government for funding for Jewish schools. This is not an issue of harm or life and death, but a benefit. And he writes, Sha'af Shevadai it's obvious that you should put in the effort to the government because this is what is the law in England. It shouldn't only benefit non-Jews. Why not Jews? In fact, he goes on to write, I don't even understand the question. It's so posh to Moshe. And he ends off by saying, you should put in whatever efforts you can. So that's the second area. And then we get to the third area where here the advocacy is to, I guess, sway non-Jews generally to have a more positive view of the Jewish people. I'll get to that in a moment, but I just want to go back to the two type of areas that we've discussed, because areas one and two is really where we find ourselves nowadays with regards to the, the, the Matzav. And it's important to add that the type of advocacy that generally we're talking about, is in areas where real harm is being done, the hostages, 
or where there is potential concern or danger. The pro-Palestinian marchers here in London hate speech. You know, the chanting, wanting to eradicate the Jews or all the people in Israel. So my original thought when we discussed this topic was, why doesn't it just fit into the age-old question of Hishtadlus versus Tfilah? or relying on Hashem. And, you know, much like Parnosa, of course, one davens for Parnosa and one knows that Hashem is the ultimate provider, but right. one is Mechoyev as well to go out yeah. into the world and yes. make business. But I'm assuming the difference here would be because we're in Golis and we have to keep a low key, it's not like other forms of Ishtadla. So I'll give you an area where perhaps advocacy for a Jew is not really where we should be. And that is, you know, pointing out all the lies and the hypocrisy. Because we will not get to a point that Jews are seen like non-Jews. We are in Golis. And even in America, where people are treated equally, that's not a goal. That's a secular Jewish target, not a religious one. We can obviously ask for equal treatment, as Ramesh writes in his Truva, in law, but not for the world to see us being like them. Okay, so let's get to the third area of advocacy to be treated in a more positive light for non-Jewish governments to support Jews generally. We're talking at a time where there's no specific threat facing them. So you would find many examples in the life of Rav Shemshul Hirsch. Potentially an example is the Polovich Rov back in Lithuania, when he put in a tremendous effort to create a religious Jewish political party in this Lithuanian parliament, which clearly was full of anti-Semites, and the Jews would never be, you know, the swing vote. And the efforts he put in were not just to getting people to stand for election, but to encourage people to vote, etc. You know, all that he had to put into this. But perhaps a more pointed example is Ravaron Kotler with Rav Moshe the most famous is when President Kennedy invited Ramosha Shera to the White House to hear about how Jews viewed an American vote in the UN about Israel. And there were, I think, 10 or 11 other Jews there too from secular organizations. Rabbi Aaron insisted that Rav Shera should go, and it was on Tishabov. This is in 1961. Rav Aaron instructed him to shave. He told them he should wear, you know, leather shoes. He also told them to put sand inside the shoes. And before he went, Rav Aaron went through all the issues regarding Israel's security situation. This is in 1961, so there's no war at the time. And he spoke about all the things that might arise in the discussions with the president. And he spent an hour and a half doing this. And Ravaran did not read secular newspapers. He didn't listen to the radio. And Ramush Shera stated afterwards that Ravaran anticipated the direction, every direction basically, that the discussion with the president would take. And Ramusha presented the case that he had heard from Ravaran. And these became the talking points, the focal points of the discussion, even amongst the non-religious Jewish representatives there. And then an interesting ending to this story, Rav Moshe told his son, Rav Shimshon, that shaving before the meeting was one of the hardest things he'd ever had to do on Tishabov. And he's, you know, he's thinking about Yosef Atzadik, who was taken out of prison and brought in front of Paroi on, on, on Rosh Hashanah, you know, and uh, he has given a haircut. And by the time Rav Moshe Shera returned to New York from the meeting in the White House, it was almost time for Mincha. So he goes from the airport to Long Island because he wants to find a minion where no one's going to recognize him. And just before Mincha starts, the Rav of the Shul announces they've got the honor of welcoming Ramosha Shera. So he had to tell the Rav, would you please announce that I've just been to the White House and I shaved because Ravaran told me to. Right. <laughs> and there was another occasion where Ravaran congratulated Ramosha Shera for his Shtadlonus in Washington regarding education as having removed a Chilol Hashem. Ravaran said, people won't be able to say any longer that Catholics are in favor of religious education and Jews are against it. And this actually was a case where Moshe Shera was opposed by all the other Jewish groups. He sat with religious Christians to the extent that when he walked in and he sat down next to the Catholic representatives, the bailiff came over to him and said, Rabbi, you're on the wrong side of the room. Right? But the examples in, further back in history, the Svarna, 
He'd translated one of his Svorim into Latin, dedicated the translation to Henry II, the French king, and he sent it to him. But I guess, you know, if we want to talk about more recently, the New York Times published pieces that were hostile to orthodox schools. It wasn't just that people said to him, or by people beseeching the Board of Education. They had a meeting with the governor of New York to try and get the New York Times to retract. Surely it's only non-Jews that read it. They're not going to be influenced anyway, but that's not necessarily the case. Now, clearly, it's way above my pay grade to get into the different opinions within the Menetsis of Aguda about participation in the rally in Washington. That's clearly not for me to decide in any way. But I want to look at similar events in American history much earlier. In 1967, there was a march during the Six-Day War, and Rav Rudman went with Ney Israel, and Rav Sve went with the yeshiva in Philadelphia, the Tels Shiva went, and there were no religious Jewish speakers there. And in the 1970s, with the rallies on behalf of Soviet Jewry, Rav Moshe Feinstein wrote a letter which was read out in public to 150,000 Jews who were there. So Breitowitz mentioned different opinions on the course of action taken about Soviet Jewry. But as he said, the question really was, do we do public these loud marches yep. or do we just do backroom diplomacy? Yes. In other words, that there is a hishtadlus there. Yeah. And obviously, once again, we have to emphasize this. We never move away from the supreme importance of tefillah. That's not what we're discussing. We're discussing the as well as, not instead of. I mean, other examples in history, the Vada Arbarotsis, which functioned for hundreds of years in Poland, they actually had a fund for giving bribes to newly elected leaders. you know, And they took this from taxes from the Jewish Kehillahs. Now, if you're going to say that these leaders are anti-Semitic and it's going to remain that way, why waste your money trying to gain their support or, I don't know, friendship? Spend it as a last resort to sway them when there's an urgent case. And we know that the Ksav Sefer and his son composed poems for the ruler, the Kaiser, Neudbihuda's relationship with rulers. Okay, even though, as we've spoken about in the previous podcast, it wasn't completely necessarily a lishma, but nevertheless, he, you know, he went quite a bit down the line. You have Rabbanasha ben Yisrael's book in the 1600s, sent to non-Jews across Europe. I mean, in a way, you could really ask the question when it comes to Stadlonus, why would Jews vote? Why would they vote at all if they're not in a swing state? You know, like New York, it's never going to be a Republican state. So it's almost wasted hishtadlus. But that's not how we view these things. Especially as we say that Lev Melochem Biad Hashem. Yeah, exactly. Now, will advocacy work? We don't know where and when it will work. It's a bit like Martini. Akkadosh Baruch runs things after all, but we have to make an effort. But the starting point for Hishtadlus can be taken from a mimer of Rav Desla. He begins by saying that the power of belief in a person's own abilities is dangerous. And he writes that, you know, often in spiritual matters, we say, well, there's nothing I can do. Akkadosh Baruch is in charge. And in physical gushmius matters, we say, I'm fully in charge. And both of those views are categorically wrong. He says, how often do I put my faith in X? Like in, in Parnosa, for instance, when I say, you know, this is definitely going to make money. And it doesn't happen. Or, as Rabdesla goes on to say, even more unexpectedly, why happens? Because the underlying approach is for us to be aware that the purpose of any event in the world is Ruchni. Hasibois ha'ikores l'chol ba'ilam is Ruchni. And if we have that uppermost when we start out, then we can interact and fulfill our role and input both in, in Gashmias and in Ruchnius. So, you know, the idea that advocacy doesn't work or was never undertaken by Gedolim, basically you'd have to rewrite history for that to be true. Now, people look back to Parshas Vayishlach, where Yaakov prepares for his encounter with Esau with, you know, gifts, tefillah and preparation for war. And the important extension of that is the Medrash, which the Ramban quotes, that whenever the Chachomim would travel to Rome, they would first learn through Parshas Vayishlach before meeting with descendants of Esau and Rabbi Yudah Nossi, Yanai. This is how they acted. Now, we still need to watch how it will play itself out. And it's too late in this podcast to go into details. But back in the day, 
Israel was much more isolated. They had to swallow a lot more in the international forum. They had no money. They had no fixed allies. Sometimes at times it was the Soviets. Sometimes it was the French. For most of the time, it definitely was not the British. Sometimes it was the Americans. And I don't just mean in 48, but the next 15 years. Now, as Robert Breitowitz said, I'm a mamin, and therefore I believe in tefillah and Torah. So individuals, well, firstly, they should listen to part four of you know last week's podcast, but they should daven for the hostages. And on Friday, Erevdov Landau Schlitter wrote a letter that we should engage in Bein Odom Lechaveroi, especially being mavater and overlooking things that have been done to me, which brings tremendous rachamei shamayim, he wrote. Which is what Rob Breitowitz ended off with. Yes. I'm just thinking as you're speaking, we have the newly elected heads of state, as an example, in Argentina and in Holland, who are yep. extremely vocally pro-Jewish. So in a sense, we celebrate when these things happen, but we also get, we always get nervous about public shows of Jewish support, because generally that will inevitably wake up the sort of sleeping anti-Semitism. Right. And I guess so too with the public rallies, again, whether they should be done or not is, as you said, above our pay grades. But there's always this pride almost, but there's this nervousness that accompanies with it. So a lot of the examples we spoke about weren't as public as the sort of public displays that we're talking about now. I'm just wondering if that's a... A factor. Yeah. Yes, that could very well be. But it is clear to say that the concept of trying to sway a non-Jewish government opinion is a very valid thing to undertake. How it should be done, fine. You know, how it will work out. And therefore, we, I guess, have to understand that what we do doesn't necessarily guarantee results. And we need to know what the forum is to do so. So just before we leave, the next part, which hopefully will still be released this week, we will cover the more difficult history and other questions about settlements, colonialism, the 48 war, etc. And talking about advocacy, that would probably be a very good episode to share with anyone who has been questioning, any colleagues or even now. Uh, there's enough from Jews who are listening to the media and who are questioning it as well. So I believe that will be a very important educational podcast which we're looking forward to thanks for being right and please keep sending your feedback your comments your critique to podcast at jd.org.uk we'll see you next week for the final part in this series <laughs>